Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course with James Holland. Um, there's an SMLE behind you, James. What, el- what else is that? Next uh, that's to it. Ah, yeah. right, okay. I found it in the corner Compa- and I, I forgot I had it. Compare and contrast. Well, yeah. um, uh, so who, appropriately enough, who are we talking to? Well, we're talking to... Your rifles uh, we're talking to Doctor, I think Doctor, or are you Professor? Doctor, Doctor Matthew Ford. Uh, from the University of Sussex. He's a former West Point fellow. He's uh, um, uh, got his PhD from the Department of War Studies at King's College. And we're very into uh, what Matthew's doing because he is number crunching on statistics about small arms, Uh, not just in the Second World War, but beyond. But we're really, our our focus is on Second World War and how that is, how, how these sort of thinkers about tactics how they influence future tactics. I think it's all very, very interesting. So I'm really, really looking forward to this. Welcome, Matthew. Great Thanks to, for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, really. Um, oh, no, it's great. I can see you guys are very active, always, you know, and the number of times I get into little conversations with uh, Al, or should I say Dr. Murray, um, uh, and uh, <laughs> find myself on the wrong end of it. My favourite being when I said something along the lines of paratroopers, you know, parachute vertical envelopment, who does that anymore? And that resulted in a long schooling by Al Murray as he kept putting out another, <laughs> another, another tweet telling me that I was wrong. 
Um, so you know, yeah, just don't dis airborne. Don't dis airborne. Uh, uh, I, well, I don't know. I'm I'm coming round to the idea that they're all a tragic waste of time. I, I think but, it's um, fair to say. I was, uh, <laughs> uh, Matthew, are you are you are you Matthew or are I'm you Matthew? Matt? I, I, I tend Matthew to call Matthew call myself Matthew. Matthew, but you know, I dare not think what others call me on Twitter. But I, I, I think it, on that particular moment, I was owned. <laughs> 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 um, now, um, the, 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 I mean, I've followed you um, on Twitter for a long time and watched you uh, talk about all sorts of stuff that, that um, at first glance, if you're a, you know, if, if, if you're coming at the Second World War from sort of chaps and maps and battlefields and tells of daring do and, you know, uh, 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 and, and, the, and the adventure end of, of, of the conflict, or if you're coming at it from like, you know what motivates the what motivates the the Germans to fight or the British to fight or or how does the operational level work and and all this sort of all these because after all the the, the wonderful thing about the Second World War is its kaleidoscopic ability to deliver um, different things to look at different pictures to every time you every time you turn the tube you get a different way of looking at it but small arms um, is is at, right at the heart of what we've been talking about, isn't it? The rifle that a rifleman carries and the section machine gun, these couldn't be more absolutely hot-wired, especially if you're looking at the Second World War as the second great industrial war of, the, uh, uh, of all time. These are, these are the, the, the things... That's the thing everyone should be talking about. Not these, not the Battle of the Atlantic, <laughs> but like the SMLE and, and so I, on. I imagine... Um... Well, you've got those guns behind you, James. I, mean, I imagine those are that you know when you're making models and airfix kits and all the rest of it. You kind of start with things that obviously motivate, um, and uh, you sort of go from there, really. And I think it's difficult now to kind of when it comes to firearms, it's difficult to realise how um, much they've shaped uh, thinking in Britain over a long period of time. Now that we don't, now that guns are no longer common in society you forget you know some of the people who've been writing about guns certainly during the second world war you know they get into fourth fourth editions some of these people you know they're they're explaining guns and how they work and all the rest of it. they get into fourth editions you know in the 50s and 60s after you know some of them shot for the olympics uh, the Olymp british olympic teams all sorts of things uh, i mean I'm, I mean i'm interested in technology and and the military more than just um where you guys are in terms of the second world war and so I kind of did a longitudinal study, which I sort of ended up putting into my book, which I'm going to plug early, um, Weapon of Choice. Now that I'm in front of you lot, right? So, um, uh, which, is a, which is a sort of longitudinal, I'm trying, to un trying to understand how technology and change works within the British Army um, over a hundred year period from, well, that was my PhD, 1880, which you can download for free, so you don't have to buy the book. Um, and, and I might add that 6,000 people have already downloaded it, more, more for them. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, it was, a, it was trying to understand the relationship between uh, officers and men, uh, military change through the lens of the rifle, if you like. You know, what can, you know, they're so well understood every, you know, they're, and they're so simple. You know, what, 120 components in a, uh, maybe in an assault rifle. You know, how could you make a uh, 100,000 words out of a, only 120 components? Well, I, I tell you, it's, it's surprisingly easy um, when you start thinking about it uh, because engineers underwrite that relationship between uh, soldier and officer because, you know, there's a, we can talk about the, the, um, how to persuade soldiers to go forwards, uh, how they are coerced into going into battle, 
and all the rest of it. But the social contract, if you like, between officer and man is really underwritten by the, sol- by the, by the engineer, in, in, my, in my estimation. Now, I, another lot of other military sociologists would differ, disagree on all this bit. But once you, get, once you start turning that around, you start to think, well, actually, if the, if the weapon doesn't work, you're in all sorts of pain. And I can't think of an introduction of a, a military rifle over the last hundred years that you know, hasn't been surrounded by some, some degree of controversy that results in something not working, politicians getting annoyed, industrialists getting it in the neck, engineers complaining, everyone saying, blaming each other, you know, reputations at stake, uh, the whole nine yards. Um, uh, in the warm-up, we were t- you were referencing the Sten. I mean, that's an obvious example. The early versions of the Sten, you know, they weren't, how should we say, brilliant. Uh, but there's a reason why, you know, that weapon continued in uh, service right the way through into the uh, 50s. Um, and it's not just a function of the British Army not being able to f- figure out what weapon it wanted to re- bring into service to replace it with. It was also that, you know, by the time we get to the later versions, it's not half not half as bad as it was. I'm going to go as, uh, only as far as that. Not, uh, not half as bad as it was in the earlier equivalents, right? So, I mean, you know, I'm using guns really to try and understand the relationship between all these different people who are involved in using them, making them, uh, trying to figure out what choices are the right ones, the optimal ones. You get all the way back to the logistics, supply chain, industrialists, all this kind of stuff. And that's a different story to one where um, a lot of military historians are, which is, as you say, on the daring do end of of battle where it's actually important. you know. And there's lots of great stories about warriors and heroes and or cowardice and running away, <laughs> you know, um, which I think is, you know, that's that's an important story. But I think that... Well, I guess you guys, you know, you have lots of people on your shows and stuff, and everyone's got a slightly different take on what's going on in battle. And I suppose that's the point. You know, there's all these different interpretations, and someone somewhere has got to try and make sense of them so that they can come up with this bit of kit that James has got behind him. And so it it might actually work, right? <laughs> so so the, the 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 SMLE, which I mean, James James has an example behind him. When that was when that was introduced, was this what was there like a, a um, because after all, I think the one in everyone's memory, the rifle that the British Army's had for the last three, four, nearly four decades now, isn't it? Which was a bullpup design, the the S, well, the, uh, the the LA eighty, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah, all the those, and, and all the variants. Yeah, that's right. And all the variants of that weapon, which got an extremely bad press. It fell apart. You couldn't shoot straight with it. it uh, the, you couldn't. It was difficult to clean and reassemble and complex compared to the the good old SLR, the old the old British Army, you know, automatic musket <laughs> and everything. Which, you know, which replaced the greatest infantry rifle of all time, the SMLE, as it, as it, you know, as its reputation has become. But when it was introduced, was that surrounded in that kind of controversy? Yeah, so the interesting thing is, is I, I did some work for the army on why they wanted to know why. I, <laughs> I was doing some work helping them with SA-80 replacement uh, for a, from A2 to A3. And they wanted to know, they wanted to know why they had the SA-80 family of weapons in the first place because they didn't know <laughs> uh, so so um uh you know this is so i suppose um that, that the key point there is is that you know actually lessons learned and archival work and all this other stuff that's considerably more challenge you know when you hear someone in uniform saying well we we got everything together we got we got the after action reviews we worked through it we number crunched and we figured out what the best solution was on the back of that well yes and also Possibly no, you know. There's a there's a bit of in, bit of stuff in there around how the military need to 
um, present themselves. Underlying that is are all these other challenges um, that are kind of masked and, un, you know, for all sorts of political reasons. Um, the SAAT is absolutely one of those weapons that didn't work very well. Uh, and I think probably it's fair to say that the British Army really um, only got away with it because it wasn't used very much in action in Iraq. Um, and so the lack of small unit engagements there meant effectively that, you know, no one no one was challenged about, you know, there was there were lots of reports about it not working, but, you know, there were no British casualties as a result of it misfiring or something falling off at the wrong time. And the result was is that, you know, and of course the Tory government, with all due respect, I'm a little bit of politics, uh, the Tory government, you know, having done, having privatised uh, Royal Ordnance Factories, the last thing they would necessarily want to do is reopen a story about a failed weapon. So they kind of just sort of forced the army to close it down and not really engage with that. And only when um, a Labour government came in, and they, I think that's kind of interesting as well, you sort of see these flip-flops across the last hundred years between Tory governments and Labour governments. You see that on the EM2, for example, on the the, the, the decisions around designing a future weapon after the Second World War. Um you know, there's a sort of once a different government comes in, it, fresh air be- opens up into the discussion, and all of the problems that might have been there that were previously sort of buried or hidden or smudged out or suddenly become pos- it becomes possible to engage with that as a as an issue again. And I think that's the point. You know, when you think about small arms, they 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 you know they're so simple. You just don't think that <laughs> there's all this there's all this reputation and. That it could yeah, be this complicated, yeah. Because yeah. because after all, I mean, clearly that the, the the British Army um, uh, prided itself. Uh, uh, one of the tensions I think that, that is evident in the Second World War is between the professionals and the and the conscripts, isn't it? it, it that's your those are your those are your two bodies within the British yeah. Army, aren't they? Uh, and the professional army prided itself on accurate musketry, as it saw it. That the, uh, they still called it that, oh. didn't they? That the, the guys had to shoot really well. And then the once the war progresses, well, it's about beaten ground. It's about it's about getting the other side to get their head down rather than being able to shoot a guy through the eye at a mile. Yes. You know, quite clearly that that, that that when the war comes, that is that that's the or, or certainly once the war unfolds, the first eighteen months, that's the tension, isn't it? In in small arms use development, um, you know, do you hang on to the weapons? Because after all, the, obviously, the big question of the Second World War that the Germans can never make their minds up about is, do you hang on to the gear you've got or do you divert your current industrial output to something new, which, after all, may not work, may have lots of teething problems. And also, you could have made, um, you know, another million of the thing you know works yes. OK in the meantime. And that's the tension in the Second World War, isn't it? Between yeah. between those two groups in the British Army. And what happens with the German changeover from the MG34 to the 42 is that they don't have any choice in the matter because they just can't afford to keep making the MG34s. So it forces them to keep it forces them to switch over from this to, to this sort of stamped metal uh, um, machine gun from this one that's been kind of sort of, you know, more finely engineered. You know, it, an MG34 costs three times as much in terms of man hours and something like 20 times as much in terms of actual cost from a Bren gun. Maybe it's not quite as much as that, but I mean, you know, it is, it is really in a very, very expensive piece of kit. So it, they're, they're forced into, you know, there's no choice in the matter. They have to make that transition from the MG34 to the MG42. But, but in contrast, the Bren gun is perfectly okay in 1939 and it's still perfectly okay in 1945. You know, it's not great. It's, it's got it's got things that you might want to change if you've got all the time in the world, but it's doing the job. 
so I think I mean you guys just you know you're hitting you're pepper potting all the right spaces you know I mean how what under what <laughs> under what conditions when engineers go out to the battlefield they talk to soldiers and they realize soldiers don't know much about their weapons right so you go well so which uh, and they also know that they've always got envy for the and they, yes weapons. exactly so and and of course and of always, course and of always. course that perspective shapes their understanding as to what works and what doesn't work and much of that is a sort of you know after sales pitch you know have you made the you know have you made a convincing enough st- story to tell about the reliability the effectiveness the accuracy of your weapon especially for people as you referred to out the the where they, you've got some people who might consider themselves to be experts in inverted commas and those who've just been hauled off the street and psychometric testing has demonstrated that they are the least qualified to be in infantry given that actually you need some you need you need, you, you need brainy people to do the tanks and the radio operators and the artillery and all this other stuff that involves you know, clever maths and um, being able to write and stuff. You you then through psychometric and out testing, you end up putting everyone else somewhere else. You know, that, where do you put them? You put them in infantry. Well, is that necessarily the best place for them, given the complexities of the battlefield? Um, uh, well, it's open. It's an open discussion. I think. You know, I think the um, what you find uh, in terms of uh, where engineers are on this, they go well. You know, why? And it's not just engineers, you know, after several years of fighting, they go to North Africa and they go, well, you know, uh, do we know, do, do our troops know, have a sense of how these weapons work? And they, they come away with a, it's not, and it's not just soldiers, I might add, it's also co- battalion commanders. They come away feeling less than confident, I think it's fair to say, that they should trust the perspectives of those people who are using the weapons because they don't really know how to make them get the best out of the weapons. I mean, there's lots of underlying reasons for that, right? Around, you know, there's a, a great story someone told me where I've been writing these threads on Twitter because I'm bored with COVID. Uh, and um, the the result is, is I end up chatting to all sorts of great people. Some people were working in small arms experimentation, people, you know, people who I used to work with. You know, they'd say that uh, ranges, when it switched from yards to metres, they just swapped the yard sign for the metre sign, right? So 100 yards was 100 metres, Okay, so how do you judge um, wind? How do you get to the point where you could hit a target out beyond 300 yards? And actually, that isn't, you know, the the statistics there are very, um, you know, just doing map surveys, you can see that the average opportunity to shoot beyond 300 yards when prone is really rather limited, you know. So do you need a weapon that can hit targets beyond? And that's just by doing a survey of the world. You know, you take the world, get some maps, draw some lines across it, work out, you know, if you're sitting down, lying down, can you see that far? And you find you, you, find you can't. In general, you <laughs> In can't. In general, you can't. Yeah. So, what, so if you just... Uh, and that's the principle behind the development of the Sturmgewehr, isn't it? The, um, the assault... The assault with German assault gun because it doesn't have the range of, a, of the K9. So I so I'm, was that well. Rubbish? So I mean the problem. <laughs> no, 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 go no, on, no. go it's, on, it's Matthew, go on. You know, um, if you can't trust the user, then you need someone to interpret the battlefield. You know, you've got different interpretations of what's going on there, and you've got different interpretations of what solution might work. Right. And if you present loads of statistical data about the map being, you know, uh, you know, map data saying you can't shoot between beyond, beyond 300 yards, encourage you to then change your entire supply chain. Um, 
Well, in the British Army, no, because there's a lot of complexities around actually just moving industrial... You know, we didn't have enough weapons. We weren't producing enough weapons. We, ammunition supply, um, uh, challenging at times. You know, we had to do all of this work, including, you know, bringing in machine guns and all this other stuff that were being produced in the States. You know, you had to integrate that into a, a training regime that would allow people to understand how to make use of their, their kit. And if you've got conscripts, you know, the, the question for the officers is, do you trust the conscript to do what, you've, what you, you've told them to do this? Do you trust them to do it, right? And, you know, you've got codification of military law behind you to get soldiers to do what they're told. But actually, you know, you, you can have a technology that reinforces them doing what they're told, or you can have a technology that undermines it. And, um, you know, let's go to the SDG 44. Yeah, I think the story about the Sturmgewehr is actually more more complicated. I don't think it's adequately told. And I think, you know, this, any my work on um, Anglo-American and NATO small arms tells me that, you know, if I can write a story that's complicated for those things, then you can certainly write an equally as complicated story for German small arms. You know, my view on SDG, the Sturmgewehr is, is it's not necessarily viewed in terms of as an assault rifle. It's more a case of how do we compensate for the fact that we've got any old Tom, Dick or Harry into the German, into, into German uniform and get ha- us have any chance that they might actually hit something. Well, we'll give them an automatic weapon. You know, that's not about, in inverted commas, assault rifle. I mean, you can propagandise the weapon as an assault rifle, but that becomes a sort of post, especially in the context of British and Americans wanting to adopt their own automatic weapons, it becomes a slogan, right? We are just doing what the, the Germans did it really well. We are just falling into line behind that. But actually the design history for... But I suppose, but, but my point about, about the, the range was one about the range, that the, when they were developing it, they kind of recognised that actually no one was hitting anything beyond 300 yards. So you don't need a weapon that's going to be accurate to 300 yards because no one's firing that range. So why bother? Okay. So, but, the, uh, so, but then so, we Although the Sturmgewehr can hit at 300 yards, it's not, it can't hit with any kind of remote kind so of... So the idea. question is, is has it, who's done the work that links that data back to the developers who are designing well, it? Right, so idea. exactly. Yeah, so kind of, you go, well, hold on a minute. Let's, so we're sort of assuming that there's a relationship between what's going on on the battlefield and engineers who are going, we've figured out how to solve this problem. But we've got to tr- sort of track the loop. And I, that's, the po- that's my problem, you know, we don't... So I take all your points, right, about these things. I mean, you know, in some ways, I think to myself, Germans, Germ- German kit during the Second World War is about um, indul- overindulging the user. That's why we have so many different bits of kit. They all look cool. They all have, they're all Gucci and all the rest of it. But the problem is, is that the, the industrial manufacturers, you know, industrial manufacturers are very happy. You know, we're, we're, yes, of course we can give you another widget here. That, by the way, the price has just gone up. I don't know whether you... It's, it's a bit yeah, like a builder, yeah, yeah. you know. You t- There's an awful lot of teeth that's sucking right. going oh, on. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, maybe we could do this. It'll cost you. It'll yeah, cost that's you. right. So it's a bit like getting a builder in. You know, you ask the builder to give him a specification, yeah. then you change the specification wise on the job, and he understandably, the price goes up. <laughs> well, uh, 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 never was that more the case with them. With I mean, I know we're talking about small arms, but never was that the case. Uh, more the case with German um, with German aircraft. I mean, you know, the Junkers 88 is an absolute case in point. Where they start off going, I tell you what, let's have a let's have a really long range medium bomber that can go faster than anything else, can fly over 300 miles an hour, and it can go further than anything else. How cool is that going to be? And everyone goes, yeah, great. So the good folk at Junkers sort of go off and uh, uh, and design it, and then halfway through they sort of you know the Luftwaffe general staff come to them and say. 
Actually, we've been thinking about this. We'd really like the Yonkers 88 that you're developing to have dive bombing capabilities. Can you do that? And you know, the people at Yonkers sort of do, well, we cost can, you. but it will cost <laughs> you. You know, And it won't just cost you financially. It'll cost you in terms of speed and range and a whole host of other things. But at the end of it, and in terms of time, but at the end of it, they've got a very, very expensive medium bomber, which can sort of half dive bomb but is not really much faster than the ones they've already developed in the mid-1930s and certainly haven't got any further so, And that beautiful thing about that story, James, is that it illustrates my, over, my general point, which is that you think that technology is going to go... I mean, that's the thesis of my book. You think that technology the book, of, the, of weapons is going to go from not very sophisticated to highly sophisticated in a kind of straight line. And it, it just doesn't. Yeah. You know, it, goes, it bounces around all over the place. Armed forces select all sorts of weird right. things. You go, well, why did you do that? And, you know, the only way you can explain that is when you go right it down deep into it and you go, you start tracing the arguments. And the great thing about rifles is that they are really, really simple. And because they're simple, you can trace the arguments much more simply than if you had an F-35 where they've got 400,000 lines of code and you're trying to figure out... Or you're going to Exactly. Or you're trying to figure out, you know, who's involved in the supply, in the developing this thing. You know, the, the, the extent, the supply chain is so extensive, you can't map who's involved and why, you know, a particular widget has suddenly turned up on things that you didn't know about before. So, so many, so, so many weapons basically then are developed in reaction to stuff as much as anything else. So they're, so, so they're developed in reaction to the officers going, my men couldn't hit that thing three miles away that day. And someone goes, oh, we better put range in then. And then someone's saying, well, they give off too much smoke. We better, better make them smokeless. And then you, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and anyway, anecdote, because you, you, earlier on you're saying about North Africa, they crunch the numbers, they look at the numbers and, they, and, and then they, they find out that people don't really know how their weapon systems work. You, you know, you, we all know if you present statistics to someone and they go, yeah, but the time I did it, it didn't do that. Or the time I did it, they were further away than that. The statistics aren't worth the paper they're printed on. They, the, the, the st- statistics never survive an encounter with anecdote, do they, in general? And, and especially not in a thing like battle where people are going, my life was on the line and my rifle jammed. I don't, don't, don't tell me it, always, it, it only jams one time in 100 because it jammed on me that time. Sort it out. And, and I think that's what's going on, isn't it? And like you say, so the engineer's in the middle. He's also got a budget. That's the other thing, isn't he? The Allies famously go, well, you know, we could make an expensive thing to do this, but we could make 10 times the amount for a lot less. So we'll do the cheap, the cheap things. You know, Sten guns are cheap, aren't they? Um, which is sort of their driving motive in their manufacturing. Yeah, which is, but, the, but that's a very good motive. And let me get... Yeah, oh, no, 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 I'll argue with that. No, I know. But can I... Can, can, I was just going to say, oh, it depends on how you think that you might win the battle, right? It seems to me that, you know, do you yeah. really want to... You know, we know, you guys know more than... more than You know, you know that manpower's short, uh, a shortage, you know, by time it, you go back to northwest Europe. You know that actually the level of expertise in the British Army is, you know, there's lots of people who know stuff, but, you know, you still cream off the top and you send them off into parachute regiment. You know, you send them off to Market Garden and they, they fail. <laughs> sorry, 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 with all due respect to anyone in Maroon. Uh, <laughs> uh, under those circumstances, do you want to put your manpower... I mean, you know, you have the infantry ideal. The infantry ideal is to close with the enemy, right? But that is... I think there's a reason why I'm calling it an ideal... <laughs> And that's because it's not, not, we're not, we should be careful about whether that's actually, tr- whether that actually happens or not, you know? <laughs> well, I'm d- I mean, you're, you're just, you're, you're getting me thinking about something. And, and uh, you know, following the fall of Tobruk on the 21st of June, 1942, 
there was absolute outcry, outcry back home. You know, how could this have happened? With all the arms, all the stuff that we've been sending over to North Africa, how can we have let this happen? And amongst the ranks uh, who were fighting in 8th Army, there were a number of MPs, there were a number of people who knew MPs, and they all fired off missives going, it's outrageous, you know, the weaponry we've got is appalling, it's absolutely terrible. You know, why is it that the Germans have this 88mm gun and we don't have anything approximately like that? And so the government gets taken to task, and Oliver Littleton, who is the Minister for Supply, Minister for Production at the time, Supplier Production, I can't remember, anyway, you know, he's, he's the man in charge. He stands up and goes... Well, we've got a perfectly good, you know, we've got the equivalent of the 88mm gun that the Germans are using. It's called a 3.7 inch. Uh, and we've got about 100 more than the Germans have in in, in Africa. You know, if, if, if you commanders out in Africa aren't using them, that's not my fault. You know, what are they doing? You know, what they are doing is they're defending Cairo with anti-aircraft guns where there's no Luftwaffe going over them. Uh, and, and then, and so, so everyone sort of goes, whoa, 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 sort, sort of, you know, shaking their jowls. Uh, but he points out very, very cogently that they've got a weapon that's every bit as good. So then they start sort of going, oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, the problem is, is that that's a that's a 3.7 inch anti-aircraft gun. And, you know, and our gunners aren't trained how to use it. Well, you know, all you've got to do is open the breech, put a gun in and put a shell in, point and fire. That's the whole point. It's not, you know, you're not having to kind of work out, you know, gun laying radar or anything. Uh, and also, you know, we've got the heavy goods transports to transport it. I mean... Jesus, if the if if the Africa Corps has, and we certainly have as, as the British. I mean, so in other words, quite often people think they haven't got the weaponry, and they actually have because they're not using it in the way they should. My Marshall thread on Twitter was the one that caught your eye. I mean, you know, that's that's where Marshall is. So Slam Marshall, who we were yeah, talking about the other General day, Marshall, you know, he's he's this American uh, journalist, disputed experience in the First World War, then was a newspaper man, and then found himself. Some disputed rank. Yeah, exactly right. So he then found himself back in um, the, in the Pacific in '43, uh, doing after-action reviews with people coming off the firing line and trying to get a sense as to you know what was going on in battle, really. And it seems to me that that was a sort of test of how strong that relationship was between officer and man. And that 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 and he, I mean, he he has got. I don't know whether you read any of his stuff, but. His his writing style is so authoritative, and so, I mean it's very convincing stuff. And I, you know, I love it. I love it really. I really do. It and in terms of, uh, and I understand why there's lots of dispute because you know, um, I mean, armed forces. The first thing they want to do is, you know, say that they they weren't as bad as <laughs> they weren't as bad as all that. We've done all right, you know, and slam, you know, and and so there's a bit of dispute about that. And at the same time, going back to the conscripts point that Al was making. You know, we've got a. It compared to non-wartime experiences, we've suddenly got a lot of people with wartime experience, and that then becomes something a part of society more broadly because then they're trying to people are trying to make sense of what was going on. And I think Marshall, you know, as a journalist, he he could communicate, right? He could he could set that out for people, and that's what for me that's why he's uh, important. He's important because he's sort of trying to understand how 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 soldiers participate in battle. It's that nature of what we're doing, you know, that participation frames all sorts of things. It frames military sociology coming out of the Second World War. It frames, you know, after the war, what are people interested in? Why did the Germans keep going, right? And why did the Allies keep going forwards, <laughs> right? So, and so military sociologists are trying to work that out, right? <laughs> and 
But from a from a tactic, tactical technical point of view, the bit that I was interested in and that is not properly or adequately covered in my mind from a military sociology point of view or from a military history point of view is, you know, what technologies can help push the armies, armies going forwards or um, uh, try and create the circumstances in which they are delayed. And that comes down to, you know, weight, whether the weapon encourages you to shoot whether it, whether you've got enough ammunition in the supply chain so you just keep going whether there's you know the logistics infrastructure behind you to make, ensure that your your the ammunition's at the front line to keep you going forwards uh, marshall in his writing about weapons he kind of the reason why he's so important i think is is he sort of he he sets up that discussion in a way that and popularizes that discussion in a way that i think you know what do you say to engineers? They don't go out in front with all due respect. Now I'm going to insult engineers. Now, with all due respect to engineers, you don't. What, you know, it's a bit like analysts. You don't put them in front of the public. Not like you guys. You guys, you put them in front of the public. You look good. You say like sort of make things simple. You make everything. And it's important stuff, right? But engineers, you don't put in front of the public. <laughs> you put them in. The, if you put them in front of the public, they'll just confuse everyone with technical statistics and clever stuff. And you know, what does the public want? They want some anecdote. It doesn't work like this. We want some warrior coming along and solving the problem. And the engineer's going, no, it's not about warriors. It's about volume of fire. And Marshall, <laughs> Marshall sort of helps, un- uh, you know, helps you get a grip on that, really. And that's why I think he's really important. He sloganizes something that makes it possible to think about introducing assault rifles to use. I think that's a phrase that probably, you know, at the time, they wouldn't have described it necessarily as an assault rifle. A machine carbine. Uh, maybe you know is a, is a euphemism for a Sten gun, right? Um, you know, it's it's sort of trying to militarize rather than popular. You know, it's and it also you know it's about saying something about the different martial cultures of the British Army, the American Army, and the German Army. They they and that's why you know a little bit of me goes well. You know, Sturmgewehr forty four. There's a sense in which it, it, it makes sense. You know, you go, uh, we need a weapon that can combine range and automatic. Uh, firepower so obviously it's inevitable that we'll have a Sturmgewehr 44 and it's just the allies catching up with that and actually you know that story isn't quite um, clear as clear cut Um, you know there's a lot of different um, attitudes towards uh, weaponry even between the British and the Americans you know different cultures different approaches different thinking and as you said right at the get-go you know even you know if you've got a mass army they have different needs to a professional army. You know, if you've got a mass army, the question is for an engineer, how do you design a weapon that takes away the the the, the challenges of learning to use your weapon optimally? Because we can design that into the weapon itself. And suddenly you don't, you know, you don't have to train a, a, the, the conscript in how to use their weapon because the engineers have solved the problem in the first place, right? And, and that is quite a, 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 um, a, an important insight, I think, and I think it was kind of made possible by, by Marsh. You know, it, he licensed it, if you like. We're going to take a quick break now. We're talking to Dr. Matthew Ford. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Matthew Ford about weapons, technology and the rest. The, the, the ammo clip on the Garand, for instance, is such a brilliant idea, isn't it? Because if the soldier's loaded that correctly, he just has to put it in his rifle and the rifle will shoot for him, essentially. And, uh, and it's also why you hang on to bolt-action rifles for so long. 
Once automatic, in fact, automatic weapons have, have made their point in the First World War quite emphatically, haven't they? But, but in the Second World War, both armies, but, but both sides entered, all sides entered the war with a bolt action rifle. Because, and you can also see why the AK-47 then, part of this, this lineage, it's a mass army. You, have, you aren't, you, you know, you've got six weeks with a guy maybe before you put him into battle. You haven't got time to turn him into a marksman. Whereas a, a regular army where a guy's in for four, five or 12 years and goes to butts regularly and gets to know his weapon really well. You can, you can, if you want, give him a more sophisticated piece yeah, of kit. Yeah, I think that's, you. you know, you've, you've hit the... You've hit the nail on the head. You know, at what point, where, in, in design terms, where do you, are you designing for a marksman? Are you designing for someone who's got lots of professional experience? Are you designing for someone who's at the butts on yeah. a regular basis so that you can practice? You know, what do you yeah. know about any army? You know that they never have time for practice. And what do you know about any treasury? You know, they're not going to pay for it, right? So, um, you know, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> it, it, under those circumstances, why... You, 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 you can't be sure that the people you're putting into the front line are going to know how to use their weapon. And their weapon-mindedness may or may not be there, right? You know, the, from an engineering point of view, the question is, is how far forwards do you push the design so that you can relieve the uh, training and doctrine and, and uh, uh, command hierarchy from having to directly oversee the soldier to make sure that they're doing what, they, what they're doing? Because, you know, the rifle... The, or the, the the small arm really uh, effectively provides the soldier with the means for survival and the means by which the commander can carry out his intent. That's the importance of the weapon, right? It's not, you know, on the one. If you want to survive, shoot. <laughs> if you want to live, you've got to. So that carries you forwards, right? Gives you the opportunity psychologically. And again, Marshall plugs into that psychologically. It gives you a sense of you are doing something to control your own destiny in a context that is completely mad you know and is beyond your capacity in any other meaningful sense to to in any meaningful way to make sense of so you know the, the rifle as a technological artifact gives you the means for controlling your environment right and that's kind of very very you know you wouldn't get that if i was a classic military historian and i said that you'd look at me and go what <laughs> right i think that's that's i think that's why you know I, i'm kind of why, when you broaden the, the discussion a little bit and you broad, bring in the perspectives of soldiers, engineers, scientists, industrialists, bureaucrats, uh, alliance partners, you put it all together, you get a real... Suddenly, the meaning of these things and how they work in, those, in these different contexts, how these rifles get adopted, suddenly becomes, you know, much more... Um, you, you start to see the interconnections and the relationship between armed forces and society. And actually, you start to get a sense of martial culture that you don't get if you just talk about warriors all the time so so so, what, so why is it that the germans end up with these incredibly rapid firing machine guns and no one else does <laughs> well why don't you ask a germanist <laughs> i mean you know i mean i mean i mean the, the, the mg34 begins life as a dual purpose gun uh weapon to, which is which is also as a light anti-aircraft weapon as well uh, and so presumably you need rapid rate of fire if you're going to be have any hope at all of of trying to shoot down a an aircraft flying over you. So, but you see, I, th I think that sure. okay. So the reason, <laughs> the thing is, is that, um, when it comes to small arms, everyone has a view, right? That's the problem, right? It's well, it, I mean, everyone has a view of battle, but on guns, it's surprisingly everyone has a as a point of view. So my approach was to go back to the archive and actually try and see what people were saying about these things, as you, uh, so that I could at least go well. 
yeah, I understand why you're arguing that, but it's not really what people were saying at the time, right? So, and the problem, my my strong view is is that on the story of the MG34 and the MG42, despite the fact that we everyone knows, <laughs> my strong feeling is is that we don't really know why is it that you pick a, six, a, yeah. a, a cyclic rate of 600 rounds per minute? Why is it that you have a... Um, a uh, a drum magazine and a belt magazine. Why is it that you, you know, on the one hand, obviously uh, a universal machine gun gives you the opportunity to say, well, we can hide behind, um, we've, we're under certain strict conditions as a result of the Versailles Agreement. So therefore, you know, we need to universalize our machine gun. But if you think about it, a machine gun in a tank, a machine gun for light infantry, a machine gun for armored vehicles, a machine gun for anti-aircraft role, a machine gun for fixed positions, you know, that's a, you know, engineers have got like lots and lots of stuff to deal with to try. You know, they can't bend physics, so they've got to figure out how to how to put all of these requirements into one gun. It seems to me that it's not obvious that it, that that um, the solution that was arrived at was in some way inevitable. There was a lot of stuff going on in the background. I'm certainly not disputing that there are some good arguments to be had about this thing. In fact, they're highly entertaining, and if you get on Twitter, you'll. You'll 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 see them blast past you as you, <laughs> and they come this way, and then someone, you know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I prompted it. I prompted. No, it's 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 literally the old the old chestnut on Twitter I, is you know Bren on, versus on Second World War weapon Bren, feeds. Bren versus MG forty two. Yeah, but 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 it is it is it is very odd that it but it is odd that that I mean you know maybe it's just that when they designed it that's how it came out. I mean you know it's literally just as simple as that. I mean it might it might well be I don't know, but but but. You know, the Maxim gun is firing at 500 rounds a minute, let's say, or 600 or whatever it is, 500, 600, and seems to do an incredibly effective job in the First World War. Uh, and, and they're still using MG08s in the Second World War as well. And yet, in 1934, they developed this brand new, super-duper, very expensive, highly engineered light machine gun that can fire at 900 rounds a minute. And then, because that gets a little bit too expensive and, and uses up too much metal and too many man-hours, they then develop the MG42, which then operates at 1,400 rounds a minute. And, you know, that's, that's a really hell of a, hell of a pace. So, so, and, so from yeah. a design point of view, what you, you, you clearly, you've got fleeting targets, so you need to hit those tar- You need to be able to hit those targets at a certain range. And you know that you can't see out to a certain, you know, beyond 300 yards, we've already set that. And we've also, you know, studies, at least on the British side, you know, 80, 90% couldn't hit targets beyond, say, 200, 300 yards, just on looking at actions. And so, you know, the weapons that you've got are effectively over-engineered for the problem that you've got, right? So if you're over-engineering, you know, how effective is that, right? Well, firstly, you're locking up a whole heap of supply chain, logistics, infrastructure, and industrial capacity in producing something that is too much for the for the battlefield problem that you're facing. But on top of that, studies after the war, and I'm quoting this because I just, when you were saying that, studies after the war, um, American studies, Operation Research Office said, current models of fully automatic hand weapons afford neither, they're, they're not adequate, they don't provide, uh, to improve the effectiveness that the range is not covered, uh, the adoption of pattern dispersion principle in the hand weapons could partly compensate for human aiming errors and thereby significantly increase the hits at ranges up to 300 yards. Currently, models of fully automatic hand weapons afford neither these desirable characteristics, nor are, nor are they adequate alternatives. So, you know, automatic weapons after the war, as they were being designed, couldn't actually satisfy the problem set that the ORA were coming up with. So even, so that that's the thing, right? 
you go, the, the irony here is, is we have automatic weapons and the studies were saying, well, you know, you give an automatic weapon to a marksman and uh, an expert and they still don't sodding hit anything. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so at that point you go, the engineers go, well, how far, do, so why is it that we adopt those things, right? I, well, there's a, there's a, there's a, I'll give you the short version, unless you've got lots of time. Uh, the, 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 I mean, the short version is really that, um, you know, you have to transfer your your cultural identity, your identity markers to a different weapon. You know, the M1 is a very powerful marker in American culture. You know, it's the, was it the, what is Pat, I can't remember what Patton said now about the M1, but it's like, the ideal... No, the weapon that won the first world, the second world war. He like, says it's the greatest fighting right. implement So, so if you're going to come up with a plastic gun, right, the M16, after you've had Patton, like, you know, over your shoulder saying, yeah. this is an awesome piece of kit, and the M16... And you, he's, you know, if he hadn't died, he'd be like going, you what? You, you want to replace this yeah. proper piece of kit, this proper engineered, properly designed, you know, makes it possible for us to shoot things out to three, you know, 2,000 yards with a plastic gun, right? That's quite a lot of effort you have to get to to come up with new myths, allow you to transfer your martial allegiance from this cultural icon, dominates people's perspectives about how weapons work, to this new thing that, you know, people would describe as a Mattel weapon, right? And and so, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's an anthropologist's, um, uh, it's it's an anthropologist's field day to try and explain the, the signifiers and the challenges associated with moving people from one end, for, you know, cultural markers from this place to this place, right? Um, but the really ironic thing is, is that you know, well, the thing in there is, is that you 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 even when you adopt the the, the Mattel weapon, it still doesn't help you, right? According to the analysis. You've got a weapon that is automatic, but it doesn't actually hit targets when you're either a marksman or a or an expert. So you go, well, why is that? So why why you know the, the principle that they're pushing for is a salvo weapon after the war, right? You know, you can press the trigger, several rounds come over. It's a dispersion pattern. Basically, you're giving yourself a greater probability of a greater chance. There's a greater probability that you'll hit the target. So you're loading the loading the dice of lethality. Exactly as so, it were. right? Exactly so. It's almost like you've you've been preparing. Um, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> no, sorry, stop with the teasing. I'm only getting you back because I was. Uh, you caught you uh, one day. I went to one of your um, gigs, and uh, and and, oh, and, no. and oh no, not this I was, again. Um, I was playing the Malvinas. You know what do the what do the Argentinians call the Falkland Islands? And I p- yeah. pressed the buzzer, and you had your foot on the button, and it said, and he went, "No, you don't think you get to choose, do you? I'm choosing, right?" And I was, <laughs> and I said the Malvinas, and that you know. It was a good game of fact hunt, and it's nice when a thousand people shout yeah. out at you that you're that you're playing fact hunt. Oh my hunt. god, I had no idea. I had no idea we had that kind of history, Matthew. I'm so sorry. Have, That's not me. No, anyway. no, no. That's, that's, that's another him. person. But I had the me. thin t-shirt. It's the pub landlord. I had it's the thin t-shirt rather than the fat one, right? And you're struggling into it. And you're going, hold on. Yeah, yeah. I'm an academic, or I wasn't at the time, but I'm fat. Of course, oh, I'm fat. I'm god. an academic. Anyway, so but you. Uh. <laughs> uh, You've taken 50 minutes to tell me that, you bastard. It was only a matter of time. Revenge is sweet. You know, when when you're trying to do serious things and I'm now getting you back for the other side. (laughs) You thought the heckles only only came from you to me. You usually only go one direction. You're on my turf now. Brilliant. 
<laughs> anyway, so um, you know, it's, the astonishing thing is you can't even hit the bloody targets with these things. We'll just go back to guns now. Yeah. You, you know, so why is it that yeah. you adopt that stuff? Well, I think it's because infantry have status anxiety, right? And I think that's probably yep. the challenge around marksmanship more broadly. You know, it's how do you set, set up your... Um, set, set yourself up as a as a professional at arms <clears throat> when the artillery and tanks and air force and all these other things are all actually winning the battle if they're winning the battle then hold on a minute what about us mm. <laughs> well it's poor bloody infantry yeah. isn't well, it Marshall, Marshall resuscitates their their place you know um, I think he gives them voice that's why so that's you know that's another imp- reason why he's so important and another reason why I'm, I enjoy stuff, and another reason why I've really enjoyed the arguments we've been having on Twitter about whether you know Marshall was important, significant, or whatever. And of course, the, my my good the good colleagues Robert Engen in in Canada, you know, he's putting me in my place, and sensibly so. But um, you know, and I get I got a note from another mate, uh, Tom Brasino um, Carlisle uh, at the Army War College, going, "No, hold on a minute, he's asking the right question, but just giving the he's asking the wrong question, but giving the right answer." So you get. The one thing about Twitter is that at least you get a good debate going, <laughs> or you get yeah. shouted at. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> or you get, or you get, or you get owned by Al Murray, which is always <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, this is absolutely. I mean, this is absolutely fascinating stuff, Matthew, because because the, the, these. The, I mean, to be honest, these conversations uh, um, happen a lot around armor design and. Uh, you know, tank design, tank design, you, people talk about it in these terms an awful lot. You know, uh, Soviet tanks being simple, American tanks being products of mass production. You know, after all, the British suffer that big, big crisis of confidence in their gear, uh, uh, tank equipment in the desert in 42, uh, 41, 42. But then maybe they're just bad at using them. And maybe the tanks are actually fine after all. And reliability isn't really the issue. It's that they, they don't know what they're doing with them yet. They haven't worked it out. And it's it's very interesting that this, this conversation goes around all the sort of posh end, but again, the, the, what the infantry, the bread and butter weapons that the infantry have to use kind of get pushed aside in these arguments. And that, you know, modern perspectives are sort of the tail wagging the dog in how we interpret what's going on in the Second World War. You know, like you say, it's about martial confidence, isn't it? If the other side have got an automatic weapon, if the other side have an assault rifle, Kong can afford an assault rifle. Why wouldn't you have an assault rifle yourselves? And with, a you know, a natty smaller round that's easier to carry and all that stuff, you know, all the... The stuff that goes with that changing calibre as well. I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinating. Well, yeah, and it's also it's also that relationship, isn't it, between perception and and hard data. I mean, you know, there is a perception that the the Sherman tank is liable to burst up in flames, which is why it's known as a Ronson. Uh, and 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 you know, statistically, there is uh, Sherman is no more likely to catch fire than any so other I think, tank. I mean, you know, it really isn't. And you can argue. So I think I think small arms are subject to great a lot of myth because no one really. You know, despite everyone knowing what's going on in battle, there's also no concern. It's a sort of knowledge resource. Everyone's got an opinion, uh, which the number one thing. The other is is that um, so that fuels these kinds of anecdotal um, responses. The other thing is is that um, obviously engineers coming out with their statistical analysis of things is not going to convince anyone of anything, right? We've worked out what your problem is, and it's here. Here's the numbers, and everyone goes, uh, "What? <laughs> what does that mean?" Uh, well, you should try being in a bloody battle. There mate. you go, right? So, but. But the great thing, the, the really the really smart engineers know that they need to create a myth about their own weapon so that it can then create the conditions under which it might get accepted. So one of the 
one of the smart moves from Eugene Stoner, the designer of the M16, was is that you know effectively what you have to do is create a myth around the 556 round so that you can convince everyone that its lack of stability produces, you know, massive wounding, right? And that massive wounding then convinces you that when you're on the way for in the, you know, in battle in Vietnam, whatever, you know, that you want to use your, obviously, this is war, right? So you're not, (laughs) you don't want to, but you're, you know, you're, you're building confidence in your, in your equipment, because it's got this, um, this capacity that wouldn't otherwise um, you wouldn't otherwise have heard about. And Stoner was really good pitching that story so that um, soldiers would start to get a sense as to why this was an Im- this the, the switch over from uh, um, the M14, as it was, the M1, M14, M16, yeah. why that was a, a, um, a good move. But you know what? The, the, this leads me directly to ask about the, 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 the myth and legend surrounding the brain gun. <laughs> the reason in the end it was phased out is because too accurate. <laughs> you, you, hear, you hear that a lot. Army law, the brain gun was too accurate. That was the problem with it. It was just, which is why it needed to be replaced with something belt-fed. And, and sometimes that, you know, you even hear stories that they'd, you know that they they took that the, the sights would be buggered with because it was the weapon was just too accurate. Whereas obviously what that is is that that's not true. <laughs> what does too accurate mean? Any, uh, the army when they asked me way back, you know, to look at SA eighty replacement, you know, they that they, they didn't know why they had the family of weapons that they did, right? So so when someone says, "Well, we've got this story about the Bren gun." I'm inclined to go. You have. That's very interesting. And you listen politely, and you go. That's very. That, right. <laughs> and you note it down. <laughs> and then you go. Well, okay. So I mean, the, the story of uh, the GPMG and the Bren. I mean, the Bren. Um, you know, the arguments around the use of the LMG after the war are complicated. And the reason they're complicated is because the British Army adopts what's called the EM2, which is the experimental model number two. Um, uh, which is a, 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 for want of a better phrase here, an assault rifle, a bullpup assault rifle, a precursor to the SAAT, uh, and it's the, the goal is to replace a number of weapons: the uh, number four, uh, the Sten, and all in one weapon, right? Uh, and to complement that with some kind of general purpose machine gun, you know, when you've got the good old SLR, uh, because you know you can't come to the Americans outfox um, the Brits really, on it, when it comes to selecting, you know, at one point in 1950, 50, 51, I can't remember, 51, we do, the British Army does select the number, the, the, the number nine rifle. There's a big fight between Lord, uh, between um, Field Marshal Slim and Churchill at number 10. Lord Sherwell's taking notes. You know, this is one of those times where, you know, prime ministers actually give a toss about guns, which is astonishing, really. But then Churchill kicked off some of that story around selecting a new weapon after the war because he wanted to um, standardise with American uh, uh, weaponry. You know, Marshall is... uh, Sorry, Slim... Um, uh, Field Marshal Slim is being told by his engineers that the best piece of kit is the EM2. And so he says, well, we need the best piece of kit. And the result is you have a big ding-dong with Marsh- with uh, Churchill at number 10. Lord Sherwell is taking the notes, and you should read the notes. They're quite kind of entertaining. So we say, you, you say this one, and they have different... You know it's bad when they have different minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so... Um, and, and of course, Church, Churchill figures out how to delay Marsh, um, uh, Slim and figures out how to 
put thing, you know, and you can use time to delay the process by which something that a decision then translates into implementation. And, you know, suddenly the problem becomes more complicated. If you want to fudge the decision, then ask the Canadians and the French and the Belgians and all the other yeah, people to yeah. come, all the other emerging yeah. NATO powers to come in, get involved. And then, you know, the Americans will cut a deal with the French and the French will go, yes, no, the EM2 is rubbish. And, you know, we need a different caliber. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. suddenly you, get, you end up with the self-loading rifle, which is a, a great Belgian design, you know, from Fabric Nationale. Um, uh, and that weapon, you could fire it on automatic, and it was designed to do that. But you know, when you're putting a seven six two round through it, which is an American, which is um, which is the standard that the Americans uh, settled on, you know, you hurt your yeah. shoulder and you don't hit anything, right? And well, yeah. and so, you, you, and, and it doesn't. So you have to you move it to self loading function, you know, equivalent to one shot automatic fire, but one shot, and you have to keep yeah. pulling the trigger. No need to. It's not a bolt action. And you have to then have a um, uh, some kind of stir something to replace the Sten gun, and that's where you get the Sterling, and then you get the Sterling, the SLR, and then you go well. What do we need here when it comes to LMG? You know what what is that role? What's that going to? How are we going to have a weapon there? Because we're busy building the GPMG as well, right? And yeah. the GPMG, I don't know if you pick one up, but it's it's it, I wouldn't I wouldn't exactly describe it as light. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, so you know it's. It, you find that the Bren suddenly has retains a role in the British Army in the in a sort of light infantry capacity when we're off trying to pretend that we're withdrawing from empire in a sensible and orderly and non-coercive manner when that's just yeah. not true. And, you know, there's lots of nastiness going on and the LMG still has a role under those yeah. circumstances. But whether it has a role, you know, in on the plains of... In, in a NATO, NATO in a European yeah. context, you know, there's a reason why the MG3 is there which is the MG42 in 7.62, right? And you can put it on a on a vehicle. You can organise yourself around the vehicle and then you don't have to carry it. It's quite sensible, really. Well, because I've got, you know, the point is, is I'm interested in how technolo- technology change over a 100-year 100 100 period, right? And, you know, I'm looking at warfare now in the 21st century and I'm instead of the weapon of choice being the rifle, I'm kind of getting to the point where we're thinking about the phone as something really instrumental in shaping how we think about the battlefield, mm. right? Because we're talking about how to deliver ordnance onto the battlefield. What are they? What are people? They, they're, they're looking at this thing, right? You know, as a way as a way of yeah. framing how you imagine getting ordnance onto the battlefield. And um, yeah, by the by the way, radicalwar.com is the uh, website for the book. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> The phone offers a different way of participating in war in a way that, you know, 100 years ago, the rifle, you know, 100 years ago, you, after the Boer War, um, uh, Lord Roberts is going, well, people don't know how to shoot. So we're going to have boys clubs for shooting. And now we've got this, the, the ubiquitous f- smartphone has sort of become this thing that sits in the background and frames how we think about war now. I'm going to send you a copy and you Gosh, can go. Nice rubbish. <laughs> No, that's a fascinating. That's a fascinating notion. Uh, well, well, uh, well. Thank you so much, uh, Matthew. I mean, I, it is the sociological aspects of technology, especially technology in war, where after all, as you said earlier, it's a, an insane situation you're in, and it's a piece. These are pieces of technology designed to deal with essentially moments of moments of madness. Obviously, lots of lots of thought, lots of ideas, and and then lots of countercurrents 
go, go into them. So, I mean, I, I, I feel I feel truly enlightened about a lot of this. And um, <laughs> Weapon of Choice by Dr. Matthew Ford, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. um, in all good bookshops and W.H. Smith's. Uh, <laughs> well, brilliant. Thanks, thanks for talking to us, Matthew. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you all again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.